This is Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. If you're just joining us, please go back and start at episode one. I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. This memoir is my experience of becoming a first-time mother and navigating the healthcare system for my son, who was diagnosed with a rare condition. Ecstasy and Agony. Meeting you for the first time was and is the highlight of my life. I had imagined you, thought you into being, yearned to be your mother, and carried you for nine months. And there you were. Instantly, all of my pain melted. The pain of being sliced like a loaf of bread. The humiliation and disappointment of not following my natural hypnobirthing plan. And the ache in my heart of not meeting you for the first few days of your life. Of not being well enough to physically leave the maternity ward. It all dissipated with the excitement of seeing you for the first time. Of getting to meet my little creation. And as quickly as it dissipated, the pain came rushing back, intensified in the form of motherhood. As I saw you lying on your tiny hospital bed at the end of the row of bed designated for preemies, with other parents crying, sobbing, praying over their beds, arguing, negotiating, begging their respective deities for the health of their children, I was overcome with panic, fear, and worry. You had your tiny little hand wrapped around your Abba's finger, and he was cradling your head. It was all of you that we were allowed to touch, as you were hooked up to monitors, heart rate, breathing rate, and saturation. You had multiple IVs delivering a cocktail of drugs with names I couldn't pronounce, let alone remember. You had a tube stuck up your nose delivering continuous food, and another tube across your face that pushed up your nostrils, helping deliver more oxygen into each breath you drew. Although I was overwhelmed with all the medical equipment and beeping and lights and monitors, you were still the most beautiful creature I had ever laid eyes on. Hospital or no, you were my little boy, my pride and joy. And the first time you grabbed my finger, I was overcome with emotions. Joy for finally, finally, finally getting to meet you and deep, deep, deep sorrow for the pain that you are experiencing in this horrible place called the NICU. Surely, I thought, we don't belong here. Surely we won't be here for long. Which it turns out is the lie all parents must tell themselves, the lie I told myself countless times during what would turn out to be a long, extended stay in the hospital. We weren't allowed to pick you up, to hold you, to hug you, until you were six weeks old. One and a half months is a long, long time to wait to cradle your pride and joy. So in the meantime, we did all we could. We held your hand, we cupped your head, and sang to you. Honestly, I read every motherhood and baby book I could get my hands on to prepare, and none of them even remotely mentioned, let alone prepared me for this type of situation. My mind was blank. In my post-surgery delirium, I forgot everything, every song, every lyric I've ever known. All that came to me that day, and many of the days following it, was the ants go marching. And just like the ants, 
Though paralyzed by fear and trepidation, I continued to march, praying that I would get to keep you. Seeking Answers You were quickly diagnosed with hyperinsulinemia, a disease that means your pancreas produces too much insulin and causes low blood sugar levels. It's the exact opposite of diabetes and generally a childhood disease. The doctors could not tell us whether it was permanent or transient, meaning it could disappear tomorrow or plague you into adolescence, which is quite a large gap for a parent to comprehend. They initially identified the culprit for your condition as maternal diabetes during pregnancy, which it turned out I did not have. They began mapping our DNA to see if it was genetic and ran a hemoglobin A1C test to see if it was related to the pregnancy. So many questions and so few answers, some of which your medical team would discover and many, many of which were simply beyond their power. Unfortunately, that wasn't the only health issue you were contending with. You had a breathing tube, blood transfusions, a severe skin rash called fat necrosis, which looked like a serious case of frostbite across your back, liver failure, and a host of other health issues. You had a big heart defect, but you were too sick for it to be fixed. Off to a rocky start, and to our dismay, we weren't taking you home anytime soon. You and I were both still patients on the ninth floor, so Abba packed up suitcases from the house, and we rented a room in a small in-house hostel on the fifth floor of the hospital. We didn't know it then, but room five would be our home for the next 16 weeks. While four months doesn't sound like a long time for a vacation or time off, it's a terribly unbearably long time for a stay in the hospital. Room five looked very much like the inside of a psychiatric ward. White, sterile walls, minimal furniture made of fake wood, two single beds, a closet, a desk, no windows, no fresh air. It crossed my mind a few times to decorate, but you could only book the room weekly. The reservation needed to be renewed every Sunday, and when Sunday rolled around, I could never bear the mental burden of planning to stay even one additional day, let alone another week in the hospital. And this became my whole world, shuffling between the ninth and fifth floors. Abba, Safta, and I took turns watching over you, waiting to be released from the prison that had just become our entire world. I felt conflicting emotions towards the hospital for keeping you alive and saving you while simultaneously locking you, our most prized possession, away. Depression. Those first few weeks in the hospital felt like an eternity. When I fell into my deepest, darkest despair, the words just came pouring out. The pen and paper became my only solace. God help me for letting some of these thoughts even cross my mind. I wrote, Being a parent is hard. You start building hopes and dreams from the moment you hear that first heartbeat. And then miraculously your life changes. Instead of dreaming about which Ivy League, brown obviously, and great loves and bigger adventures, you're hoping for one good day, one hour of stable breathing, one more check with a stable sugar. 
praying for the day you get to introduce fresh air and unadulterated sunshine into your son's life, waiting for the time you get to hold your son in the quiet of your own home, just waiting, waiting to live your real life, the one you imagined for your family outside the hospital walls, waiting for the real beginning, waiting to pretend that this was all a bad dream, waiting for the ruby slippers to appear, waiting to utter, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, there's no place like home, and suddenly you're home. Falling deeper. How to lose your will to live. You think it happened suddenly, but in truth it happened slowly, like grating cheese. And suddenly there's nothing left. Your spirit is utterly broken, laying on the ground, waiting to be resuscitated, praying to be reborn. Nine weeks into our hospital stay, I went to yoga for the first time since giving birth. As I exited the hospital, climbed the hill towards the gym, and crossed the train tracks, a thought crossed my mind, and I entertained it for ever so brief a moment. If I just put one foot out, just one step, perfectly timed as the train crosses the tracks, just dip my toe, this could all be over. This nightmare would be over. I could not endure any more suffering. Not for me, not for my family. And as quickly as the thought entered my mind, I banished it to the furthest reaches of my soul. After the train left the station, I continued on my way, just in time to start sun salutations. A patient once more. My days were occupied with the intense stress and agonizing chronic depression of the NICU. Trying to be a good mother, a good nurse, and a good advocate in this environment was absolutely exhausting. No control and marginal input, but maximum emotional, physical, and mental effort proved to be a draining combination. One evening, I spiked a fever, 38.8 degrees Celsius, which is about 102 degrees Fahrenheit. We had lived in the hospital for the past few weeks, and I had just returned my hospital gowns, and I couldn't bear to become a patient again. That stupid gown with an open back that left half your behind hanging out at all times, and the horrible plastic wristband with your name and number that was impossible to remove. The IV permanently plugged into your arm that was constantly itchy and made you feel like a junkie. I just couldn't do it again. I threw myself into an ice-cold shower and hopped back into bed. Sopping wet and shivering, I checked my temperature again. 103. Damn. Time to walk the plank. Safta and Abba walked me down to the emergency room on the first floor and I checked in for tests. They found my vein and inserted the IV tube, took my temperature, heart rate, blood pressure, and urine sample, and had me lie down in a bed. As you start to feel yourself plunge into sickness, you start to let other things that would normally concern you fall by the wayside. Your hair, appearance, clothes and smell all become irrelevant luxuries 
as the waves of illness overcome you. The first course of action was to send me for a pelvic exam, as they suspected that my fever was a byproduct of the emergency C-section a few weeks prior. It showed nothing, so the doctor sent me to get a CT scan. CT scans are full body scans in which you lie on a metal piece with your arms over your head as they insert you into a machine that scans your body. In order for the scan to read, you must first drink a disgusting material that tastes radioactive. I got through about half of the necessary amount required before I puked all over the ER floor. I barely managed to choke down the other half before they gave me an injection and sent me into the scan. As I lay down on the table and the technician altered my body position for optimal machine reading, I felt as if my veins were simultaneously burning and melting in my body. The radioactive material was coursing through my veins and I felt a warm sensation all over my body from the outside in. They discovered that I had DVT, deep vein thrombosis, which is just a fancy word for a blood clot in my vein probably caused by the C-section. I was put on antibiotics and a daily injection of Clexan, a blood thinner for the next few months. I had always hated my hips growing up. I thought that they were disproportionately large for the rest of my body. Never had I been so thankful for the fattier parts of my body. The injections hurt like a bitch. But on the fattier parts, they stung less. And so I spent the next few months rotating Clexan injections on my hips where the extra fat absorbed the pain and suddenly became my friend after years of being my enemy. The day before I was released as a patient for the second time in the hospital, I received a visit from one of the Russian doctors who had been responsible for removing my staples after my C-section. She remembered me. When she saw me in the women's hospital ward, she raised her hands to her cheeks. Oh no, why are you here? What happened? I told her about the DVT. Oh no, practically everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. Well, I thought to myself, what can you do? Life is cruel. And I'm so deep in this black hole of darkness and depression that I can't remember a time that I wasn't in this hospital and I can't seem to picture any sort of future beyond this place. Drowning. My soul is anorexic, starving under the weight of reality. Today's performance, my body walks, My soul crawls along beneath it like a shadow. The whole world's a stage, isn't it? I hate my life. I lift my eyes to the heavens. I bow. I pray on bended knee, begging for help. But who can hear me? I pound my fist into the ground, choke on my tears. But no one is listening. Is God this cruel? My prayers float up into the nothingness, and all I hear in return is silence. Death can't be as cruel as this life. Privacy. My mood swings with your blood sugar level. It's emotionally exhausting to be so high and so low. 
I don't know whether I stopped believing in God or whether I was so profoundly angry and so profoundly grateful that I could not process both feelings simultaneously. Do I pray to a God I don't believe in? A God I can't trust? Is he non-existent or negligent and apathetic? Having such strong emotions on both sides of the bell curve is impossible to maintain for so long. I needed to let one side go. But which? And how? I was alone with you for the first time today. Totally alone. You were almost four months old. They let me bring you with all of your machines down to the fifth floor to room five. So quiet and so beautiful. It only took 14 weeks for me to get to be totally alone with my son. It was so perfect that I said a prayer, thanking God for letting me reach this momentous occasion. I was finally able to hold you in the privacy of our own room. The weight of your body surprised me, and suddenly motherhood became even more real. Holding you in that moment, time stopped, suspended, just for us. Then the glucose monitor beeped, glucose low and dropping. The perfect moment was so transient, shattered, shoved back into the reality of medicine and beeping and monitors. So perfect, yet so gone. Sanity. The chaos of the NICU is maddening. It's the beeping that really drives you mad. All the rows of babies with all their monitors beep, 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 day after day in a dystopia, a storm of noise. As maddening as they are at first, the noises begin to fade into the background as the weeks go by. The day you come in and hear perfect silence is when you know you've lost it completely. Alana. Our next door neighbors in the NICU had a daughter named Alana, who is just about your age. The general rule for parents in the NICU was not to speak to another parent unless spoken to, and not to look at anyone else's child. Everyone was encumbered with their own sad stories. When you were completely overwhelmed and beyond your capacity, sharing, commiserating, and asking questions about other patients didn't do anything but deplete you further. We occupied the end of one of the rows in the intensive section of the NICU. Before you were released, you had to pass through one section for more highly intensive patients and two for less intensive patients. Since we were on the inside of the row, we had a window on one side. It was sealed closed, so there was no fresh air, but at least we had a view. The other side was an aisle we shared with a young religious couple that couldn't have been older than 23. I tried not to look over at their child, but it was hard. Babies generally don't look like anything when they are born, but if they're sick, the pain of seeing a newborn hooked up to tubes and needles is heartbreaking. It's easier to see your own child as a baby, not a patient, because he's yours. I tried to mind my own business, but sometimes the mother's tears Sobs and wailing broke through the wall I had built in my mind and the blinders I had put on my eyes. Ilana, she would moan as if she were trying to wake her daughter from her coma. I can still hear her voice in my head. I don't know what Ilana's diagnosis was. I only knew it was dire. 
And then one morning, they wouldn't allow me into the NICU. Your row was blocked and her bed was surrounded by white dividers. At first, I didn't understand what was going on. Why couldn't I visit you? Were you all right? One of the nurses assured me that you were fine and told me to return in two hours. And then it hit me. The thought sickens me even now as I write this. Life is fragile, short, and cruel, often to those who least deserve it. May her memory be a blessing. When I came back two hours later, it was as if nothing had ever happened, except for an empty, vacant bed next to yours. It would be filled by the end of the day with a new patient. The doctors told me not to worry and assured me that her case was very different from yours. Nonetheless, I held you tighter that night and prayed, like every other night, that I would get to keep you for another day. Waiting and dreaming. I will wait. I will wait, I will wait. I will wait to live. But when I do live, when I'm not walking around like a corpse whose soul is being tortured, who isn't living someone else's bad dream, when I can live, when we are free, I promise myself that I will live my best life. We will live life to its fullest. But now, I will wait, I will hope, and I will dream about our best life. Things I miss most, quiet, privacy, fresh air, sunshine, fresh air, and quiet. Dangerously low. The hospital was a foggy haze, and I felt like I was sleepwalking through my worst nightmare. What kept me most grounded was the strict schedule my breasts had me on. I was pumping every three hours, and when I didn't adhere to the schedule, the ache of milk reminded me that it was time to pump. A few times, I thought that I would quit pumping, but Safta, who is a pulmonologist by training, said that pumping was the only thing I could do medically for you. As far as modern medicine has come, doctors have not been able to replicate the nutrition and immunities passed on from mother's milk. Formula doesn't even come close. So every three hours, around the clock, I zipped on my pumping bra, hooked up the pump, and magically transformed into a milking machine. A woman's body is really a wondrous instrument pleasing in its form, but surprisingly utilitarian in its design. One morning, I left the NICU briefly, took the elevator down to room five and pumped. You were asleep and your sugars were high. I told the nurse, a very thorough, trustworthy Russian nurse, that I would be back in half an hour. When I came back, you were covered in beads of white sweat, sucking on your tongue as if you had a pacifier, lying on your side, eyes wide open, but in total silence. As I sterilized my hands and slipped on my sterile gown, I noticed that something was wrong. I called the nurse. 
What's happened? What's wrong? She turned around with concern and ran over to your bed. She wiped your sweat with a cloth and checked your sugar. The AccuCheck blood glucose checker read 29, dangerously low. A normal blood sugar level is between 70 and 120. Anything below 60 is problematic. 29 is dangerous. Like if you remain at that level for too long, your body will shut down and you'll go into a seizure. Many hyperinsulinemia babies have seizures. The hospital team had managed to prevent that thus far. The nurse ran to administer a shot of glucagon, the EpiPen of sugars, to immediately increase your blood sugar level. The nurse was visibly upset at herself. She said that she had just checked you and didn't know how you managed to drop so quickly. This was the disease, the condition, evil in its nature, serious in its effects, and instantaneous in its impact. At least, Softa said, trying to comfort me, you weren't asymptomatic. And if you ever were to get that low again, I would be able to recognize your symptoms. From then on, whenever you started to drop, I would tap on your nose and say, low, 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 so as to teach you how to communicate when your sugars were dropping. Unfortunately, and fortunately, this was your first gesture. Thank you for listening. This has been Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. And I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. You can find us on Amazon.com or like us on Facebook. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Leader and mastered by Keith Rigling. <laughs>